receiving incoming transmission. Have you heard of the shadowy group known as the Assassins, the enemies of the Templars? Or is there more to that? Were they really the enemies of the Templars? Or were they their buddies? <laughs> Gary Wayne, part two. Radical Christian. Welcome back, Radical Christians, to the Gary Wayne Templar series, part two. Last week's episode was a big hit. Everybody loves just how much information Gary pours out. He's a walking encyclopedia, and it was awesome. That's how I like my information. So, time for Gary Wayne Part 2. Okay, so this is Part 2 of our discussion. Uh, we're going to talk about assassins and their link to the Templars and Arthurian legends and how you, how you link a lot of the, the legends back to the Templars. But before we get started with that, I wanted to just touch briefly on on your book as a whole. So you said over 30 years of research went into this, correct? 30 years of research of the Bible and other aspects of this. So when I decided I would start looking at writing this book, I I started to dig deeper into aspects that were outside the Bible. So from that point on, it took me, you know, at least a dozen years to get to a point where I thought I was ready to publish after that. So it's kind of a combination of those 30 years to be specific on that. So a lot of research went in it. And I was a historian buff before, uh, right from childhood. I read nothing but history for the most part when I was young. I wow. became a mythology buff. And so when I decided to write my first book, the concept was to write a short book just to see whether I could get published. And I'm a prophecy buff. And that's, you know, just, I became, as I came back to Christ, that was my huge sort of, what I felt was calling. And so this came into it because I felt I needed to write a short book. And so what I thought I would do is I would connect Genesis 6 to giants showing up after the flood inexplicably, demons being talked about, uh, Jesus' time to fallen angels and how it's talked about in, in Revelations and just sort of write a short book on that. <laughs> and then as I was doing it, you know, I said, uh, I know a lot about mythology and this is all, the, the Genesis account is an identical story, but it's more of a polytheist lens than a monotheist lens. Whether or not it's a copy or a parallel account, uh, I'll leave that for other people to decide, but it's basically the same. So I wanted the people to understand that uh, what the Bible is talking about is spoken about in all of the ancient cultures around the world, which is why you have a common religion, common buildings like pyramids, and on and on and on. You know, giants all around the world, all with the same story. You have Babel stories that come from all around the world. There's reason for that. And so I thought, well, I'll link that in. And then when I did that, then I thought, well, I have to link in the mystery schools, which is part of the religions. And I have to link in the religions because the secular accounts are all polytheist accounts, religious accounts of how they view prehistory. And then once I linked in that with the mystery schools, the mystery schools are where the secret societies (laughs) were about. Then I thought, well, I don't know. A whole bunch about secret societies so i have to learn a lot about secret societies and when i opened up that trap door it was like i was down there for a long time and it's an endless amount of rabbit holes you can go down and uh, you at some point in time you just have to say enough's enough and so it turned <laughs> into the longest book i'll probably ever write and i I'd actually weeded out or edited out 300 pages before i even took it to the publisher so um there's just an incredible amount of information out there. So that's how I came about the research and how I published my book. And my next book is going to be more back to prophecy, even though the publisher wants me to do a sequel to the Gen 6 conspiracy. I might do that next, but I want to get out one on prophecy um, in terms of lost Israel and second Exodus and how that's important to understand in terms of how it interacts with the events of the end time. So how, do you think that project will balloon into a, a no, massive book? it started well? to. It started to. And, <laughs> and I, you cut it off? Yeah, and <laughs> I stopped writing it for a while. And so I'm back at doing it. I'm reinvigorated. I'm clear on what I want to do. So I don't want it this big. I want it to be a little bit uh, less covering so many different aspects. A, to keep the cost down. And B, from listening to people you know since i published the first book 
because I'm dealing with this specific subject that's so important to Christians, I don't want to enter in accounts from other religions or much from other sources so that I keep it sort of pure for the Christian following and uh, not have people dismiss what I'm talking about because of that outside influence. You know, I measure everything against what's in the Bible, but what came has become clear to me, and that's why I'm so reinvigorated now to write it this way. I have to do a lot of editing and now finish, you know, to move into finishing the book. Uh, that's the parts that aren't written. It's very clear to me now how to, how to move forward on that book. It's always great when you get, when you find that, that, that trail that you need to be on for the project you're on and you get fired up again? Well, I thought I did, you know, because I I started writing this almost immediately after I published the first one based on how I did the first one. And I thought, you know what, I can do that again for if I do a sequel on this or maybe other subjects. But when I'm getting down explicitly for Christian orientated audience on prophecy, it needs to be all Christian. That's very wise. Yeah, and a lot of people, are, I, I guarantee, are going to be looking forward to that. So to get into our talk today, um, one of the most popular video game series out there right now, it follows a story between the Templars versus the Assassins. It's called Assassin's Creed. Now, they have a lot of Gnostic things in those games. There's even a, a mission they have you do where there's this this actor acting out a play where he's being crucified as, as Jesus, and your character goes and takes him off the cross to rescue him from, from people that are going to try to get him. But I was like, man, that's the, that's the Gnostic belief they're kind of ushering in right there. Yeah. But their whole story is about the Assassins versus the Templars. And then when I read your, your material, I was like, oh, wait, there's something to this that they're, they pulled that from somewhere? So yeah. who were the assassins? Because when I read that this part, the Knights Templar chapter, they didn't seem like they were enemies of the Templars at all. No, they weren't. They actually partnered together for a long period of time. And for some odd reason, the assassins gave a nod of respect and leadership to the newly formed Templars. The assassins were actually an older order mm. by a few hundred years. But then they parted company as well. But they also used assassins as translators communicators and messengers and so one of the reasons the Templars were able to build their organizations so quickly was they were working with the assassins so before I tell you what they did with information they got from the assassins let's just talk a little bit about who the assassins are Uh, most people are familiar with the Muslim religion in terms of it being part of Islam and most people within Islam are probably familiar with the Sufis and the Sunnis, but there are other sects. And there is a polytheist sect within Islam that has overlaid significant influence on the, the other two sects. And of course, you have a split in Islam after Muhammad dies, and most people are familiar with the two split in, in terms of the genealogical succession of who takes over, which are the Sufis and the Sunnis. And then, of course, they write their own hadiths, which all are different to interpret the Quran any way they want to do it. The Sufis have are another group that most people aren't aware of. There are a few smaller sects within Islam, but the Sufis were a very, very powerful group, and they are like a Gnostic group. So imagine within Islam a group called the Sufis who are like Gnostics and that are similar to the Gnostics that have molded into Christianity and into Catholicism and similar to the Kabbalists and other Jewish mystical groups that are part of Judaism. That's who Mm. the assassins are. And so they come from a different genealogical bloodline of ruling that polytheist religion. And of course, we're pushed out of Persia because they're more of a Persian religion and is more closely rooted and associated with Zoroastrianism as it molded its way into Islam um, that people may be more familiar with, which is sort of the ancient sort of religion of Gnosticism as distributed by what they believe were the Marianu or the Aryans after the flood into the Middle East and then over into India to create the Hindu religion and the Brahmanic traditions. And so when we look at the assassins, this is who this new polytheist religion is going to be. And they set up orders and secret societies within 
Islam, and assassins are one of these, and there are more, and I'll, I have more in the book that, you know, people want to know who some of those ancient names are and how, you know, what bloodlines of those families are there that you should be looking for. But I'll bring that to a modern time before I'm done with the assassins here. The assassins are part of this, and this is a military order within Islam, within Sufism, that is operating sometimes with the local ruler of Islam and sometimes not. And so when the Templars are formed, they become a partner with the Templars because they have more akin to them and they know the bloodlines and the religion, which is the same historical religion that they have. So they're going to work with them. So this organizational structure is the organizational structure that is passed on to the Templars from the assassins. And from the outside, they look like a monotheist Islamic religion, like a Sufi or a Sunni. But at the core, they believe in polytheism, worship fallen angels, just as the Essenes do, which have a similar organizational structure and also worship fallen angels. And again, I have a document on that for people if people want it, and I'll walk you through all of that and what Joseph has talked about them and what the Bible says about the Essenes. It's a show in itself, so we can't <laughs> cover off all of what I'm saying on the Essenes right here, but understand similar related polytheist organizations. And so at the core, they worship the pantheon of gods, of Zoroastrianism and the polytheist religions. This is the organizational structure that we talked about in the first show, in part one of this series, um, that on the outside of the Templars, it looked like Christian Knights, a Christian Catholic organization, Knight Order, but at the core, they worship the fallen angels, the rebellious angels. Um, and this is the organization that comes to Europe and is what all of the other organizations are going to be looked like in particular as we look at the lowest level is the freemasonry organization that is formed after the knights templar as we talked about um, after the fall of the templars in 1307 starting in scotland and so at the bottom of that order is you have that same area where you have people invited just as the templars invited people usually through bloodlines and or new money and or to you know, intermarry into the bloodlines and then sort out who they want to rise from there as they're learning the occult knowledge and then becoming adept at York Rite of Three or uh, 33rd degree of Scottish Rite and then moving up from there. So you see a similar organization. And when you see the Shriners, who are these wealthy people who call themselves, and we talked about this in the first show, 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemasons, wearing uh, Islamic hats and Islamic sword as their symbols are paying tribute to the original organizational structure brought back from the Middle East for the Templars, which formed Freemasonry. And because they're 32nd degree with all of this money and influence, they are purebloods. Is what, is what is telling you they are adepts because 32nd degree is not an adept. You have to be 33rd degree. But they're purebloods, and so they sort of, in, even though these are older people, that's sort of a allegory and a sign that they were considered adepts from their pureblood status before they were crowned adepts. And that's how you, you should start to view what the Shriners are. Again, they do great things on the outside because inside the curtain they want to have nobody looking in to see what they're really doing. Um, just as all of their organizations do that. Just as the Sufis do that. Now, what's really interesting as you start to bind this together, we have a very uh, left-wing uh, prime minister uh, in Canada named Justin Trudeau who got into a scandal, but nothing sticks because of the news that we have in Canada. Uh, he does a scandal and then breaks ethics, of, has, you know, ethic violations with what he does. Uh, but he travels to an island that's owned by the Aga Khan for Christmas, right? And the Aga Khan is the leader of the Sufis. Mm. Right? So, and the, it's close personal friend of the Trudeau family. So who is Justin's mother and father? Pierre Trudeau is one of the first families of Quebec coming from France. He marries Margaret Sinclair of the Sinclair wow. genealogy of Freemasonry, who are family friends with the leaders of Sufism and Freemasonry is the offspring of the Templars, which took the organizational structure 
of the assassins and jeez yeah you just you just can't unless you unless you understand what's going on you can't connect these dots now what's also interesting is Pierre Trudeau to show you that he's not just somebody who became wealthy and who doesn't have some sort of connection to the pure bloods when i was growing up in in canada uh, we used to see on CBC News, which is the national channel, which everybody watched everybody every night. I saw two that I remember as a childhood uh, in the late 1960s of him being uh, photographed or and filmed by the CBC going into the Club of Rome meetings. Oh, wow. Trudeau. So he's a member and as announced as a member of the Club of Rome, which was formed in the 60s. Now, why was the Club of Rome formed? The answer to the Rosicrucians, something to the Committee of 300, we covered that in the first show. Their role was to create world government divided into 10 groups of nations, which is really important because what they're trying to do with the New Babylon is create the New Age, the New Babylon, the New Atlantis, which had 10 parts to the empire that they look as the Golden Age that they want to reprodu reproduce along with the Age of Inter- Secting and communicating with the gods and the offspring of the gods who are running things. And, and again, we'll go into the whole Atlantean mythology on this show, but understand they're trying to create the new Atlantis. And this is the Club of Rome. And this is the same organization that started creating mm -hmm. doctrines to cattle herd people to accept the group of nations or the trading block or spheres of influence as they like to talk about it. If people want to see a map that they've made on that uh, of the world. It may not end up exactly that way, but directionally there'll be 10 of these groups and there'll be tens of these groups of nations, which makes up the same 10 that are prophesied in the book of Daniel and Revelation as the 10 toes, the 10 kings or the 10 horns, because it's all the same reference that will form world government. and that's what they were working on and so the club of rome has that specific role in agenda as their part and this was also the time of the rise of the jesuits who now start to take on liberation theology and socialism as part of social masonry with their march to bring about world uh, world uh, universal church and the new babylon and now we have as we said in the last show the intersection of a jesuit pope created by the Rosicrucians, which is the organization that broke away from the Templars that helped form the Templars and then formed the Jesuits as the new Templars within the church. We now have that leader working towards forming the world religion and working with governments through environmentalism and other aspects to form world government, just as uh, the Knights of St. John answers to the Pope now, which is a Jesuit, but in a different uh, structure and a different leader as he, he did that, as Pope Francis did that restructuring. So he's got the Knights of St. John working through the UN and with all of the European communities from a political aspect with understanding that the members of the leadership have to be of the royal bloodline. They're not the first born, but they're usually second, third or fourth members that are organizing uh, that within the church and understand that you know, the Knights of St. John are also answerable to the Queen of England, but from more of a Protestant side because Malta is under the jurisdiction in the last few hundred years of, of England, but they still answer directly for the most part to the Pope. So he's got the Jesuits and the Knights of St. John all working in the same direction for the same cause. What do you think this Pope will be able to accomplish? Well, he's already changing doctrine. <clears throat> He's already, you know, has welcomed the Anglicans back in. He's also trying to bring Protestantism back into the fold. I think he'll open the door to having all of this come together uh, before he's done in terms of creating the stage for having the doctrine in place. But it's going to take false prophets, many, and finally the true false prophet, to finish things off. So you're going to need false prophets that are going to come that are going to do predictions of doom that come true, contrived or otherwise, to scare people into the new Babylon so that they're not destroyed from the face of the earth, which is their doctrine of what happened at Babel. And as a lot, how a lot of Christians understand how Babel came together, so they wouldn't be destroyed from the face of the earth. 
from who? Probably the Raphaim after the flood, who they knew were giants and were out there and they were coming down from the mountain. Because obviously they knew about a recreation of these giants after the flood. Otherwise they wouldn't be huddling together in one community under one language where working together with this knowledge that they had to build the city, to build the tower that we covered off in part one, the knowledge from the Antediluvians via Hermes who partners with Nimrod, and who, by the way, is regarded in masonry as the first grand master of masonry after the flood who writes the post-Diluvian constitution, which is um, reformed again at Heliopolis from Egypt where the Essenes take their religion back to. Again, everything's always connected if you if you look for, for, for those connections. And so this is the new Babylon that they're that they're trying to form for the end time and which will have the same analogies and directional narrative as what happened at Babylon and before the flood, which is why we need to understand history to understand what's going to happen in prophecy. Wow. It's crazy just how everything is so connected. Like that that Trudeau thing really blows my mind. Yeah, and <laughs> people, unless they peel back the onion, are, aren't going to know these things. And uh, so when we see Justin Trudeau, and his, his speech was when he took power was, he was the first prime minister of the post-nation state of Canada. What he's saying when he says that, and it sounds, well, what the heck does he mean by that? He means that he is not working as a citizen for Canada. He is working as a citizen for the new religion and the new world government that he wants to do. And all of his policies and all of his words are designed to do that. And you're starting to see more of that in the U.S. as well, in significant ways. They haven't quite gotten quite as bold as Trudeau to say that, but their doctrines from open borders to letting the UN overrule American law to, you know, the persecution of Christians to using the constitution against people in the U.S. to change things in dramatic ways. And I'm not going to try and list everything that is going on because people are, uh, Americans are more aware of that than I am living through it but understand this is all going on around the world in unison and all directionally working with the same doctrines the same politics with an underlying religion as in the wizard of oz being that one pulling the strings behind the curtain which is another occult fairy tale story telling what they believe and what they're going to do as with all of their literature in a way that people don't really notice even though it's there in plain sight. But you need to understand the language and understand how these organizations are connected before you can start really opening your eyes and understanding what they're saying and what they're doing and where they're going. And so do you think, let's say like America's current administration, do you think that's a hiccup in their plan or do you think that's just a different version of their plan? Both. Both. Huh. Just. Just as Putin is uh, a hiccup. Um, so let me start with Putin. And I'm no Putin fan. Um, and I'm not going to say to uh, cheer him on or anything. And he's not trying to bring down the New World Order that they're trying to establish. He's not playing the way they want him to play. Okay. What he wants, and we'll see this if we are in the fig tree generation, come to fruition with the Gog War. He is saying, I want a bigger role for Russia not to tear down the New World Order. He doesn't want the West or the Europeans being the dominant role. He wants to be one of the dominant roles or a bigger position of that dominant role. And he wants his empire reassembled for that New World Order, which is why we see what's going on in the Ukraine. And the Ukraine is really important to him. And I have a document for people on Putin, if you want, and where his name comes from, because it shows up mysteriously in the 1800s. But it goes back, and we'll go into it all, to the Putyanin, which is the bloodlines of the Ukraine, where the first czars came from, which is Caesar, right? Another, again, allegory for the same type of things. And so that's why you see him making, you know, uh, as, as leaders, crossing over to bring in the Greek Orthodox Church as part of that assembly, as part of this organizational structure uh, for the New World Order. So what he's doing is saying, I just want a bigger role, not tear it down. 
I want to be part of that 10. I just want a bigger empire and I want to have a bigger part. And they're, so they're squabbling. Okay. And that's why you saw him try and take Ukraine. He has more countries to take yet. So politically or through military, he will expand his empire, I think. Now, President Trump, and again, I like anything that sets back this march to world government. He is definitely a hiccup. But you have to understand, he was a Democrat before he became a Republican. He was part of the inside, which he has said. He says he knows all of their secrets and knows how to hit them, which he's doing. He is doing good things for Christians and he's doing good things for America. So I commend him on that. But I believe it's similar to his dispute. A, they wouldn't let him run. And B, <laughs> he wants a bigger role for the U.S. Whereas Obama and the Bushes were diminishing the role and Clinton were diminishing the role for the U.S. in the world so that they would more easily be able to bring about a more balanced uh, new world order without the U.S. absolutely dominating everything and trying to make them poor and to concede more and more power over. Trump says, no, don't want anything to do with that. I'll be part of that, but I want a big role for the U.S. So again, I think it's more of a push within the directional move than anything else. And he is moving things through on the prophetic stage, either because he wants to or just because it's politically expedient, although most people would argue most things that he doesn't isn't politically expedient, um, or he actually has some true beliefs in some of these areas for the nation state of Israel, but there's a lot of people who believe Israel is not the true Jewish people, and it's uh, Satanic Jews and Zionist Jews and um, Khazars and Edomites and everything else. I believe for the record that if any of that's true, it's irrelevant because there's still a remnant of Judah that God will stand up and fight for in the end time. And those are the ones who flee Jerusalem at the site of the abomination at the midpoint of the last seven years. and are described in Revelation 12, which is the same timetable. And so whatever you think about the Jewish people, not all of them are the part of the synagogue of Satan. Um, so when we look at what he's doing with the, as I take that back to what uh, Mr. Trump is doing, President Trump is doing, um, you know, he set up Jerusalem as the capital, which has been American policy for decades but no president had the guts to do it. So he's done that. So he's moving the agenda forward in Israel, in the nation state of Israel right now, and he's trying to create a peace treaty. I don't think he gets one. Um, I don't think he's going to take over and be the leader of the US in this uh, 10 nation world state because he's probably got too many enemies. I think if there is a succession or something happens and he is the family that leads, it'll be one of his sons. So that would be more likely what happens. And he's getting up there in age. So, I mean, he'll be well into his 80s after a second term, which I think he likely probably wins. And then at does that, that point in time, do they say, let's put the Trump family bloodline on? Or is it going to be an Obama family bloodline? Or is it going to be a Clinton family bloodline? Probably not the most purest of the bloodlines, as you see that coming forward for that world government that the Templars envisioned to set up. But we also have to understand in Daniel 2.43, you have the metallic dynasties, which are the same as the beast dynasties in Daniel uh, 7 and 8 and in Revelations, that the end time world empire comes out of and is the revived Roman empire. But in Daniel 2.43, you have two legs and ten toes with a separation with iron and clay not mixing, and you have this odd statement where the descendants of the metallic dynasties that go back to the Raphaim, who usurp the dynasties after the flood and set up all of the royal bloodlines that all of these organizations, including the, the members and the original founders of the Templars, take their bloodlines back to, are going to mix their seed with humans in Daniel 2.43. I wonder whether or not we have, with those two legs uh, and Ten and five kings on each of those ten toes, you have some strong men that have very diluted bloodlines with the more pure bloodlines that are going to rule the world. I wonder whether or not there's two parts, equal parts of the end time empire. Um, 
uh, you know, it divides into two in terms of how the regions are subdivided. Um, because again, you have the two legs. Um, I wonder whether or not that has anything to do with how the universal religion um, sets up, but it does leave room for the possibility of not all, everybody has this pedigree like Antichrist will have. And even the other kings may have a lower pedigree, although a noble more than maybe part of the strongmen. And people look at, and are actually calling President Xi a strongman. He may or may not be, but he comes out of the Li dynasty. He comes out of the Xia dynasty, which created all of the dynasties throughout Chinese history. And the Li's came back into, into power uh, before Xi, but Xi is also part of the Li dynasty. I have a document for people on this if people want to understand that. And the Xia dynasty is created by the Yellow Emperor, who is a offspring of the dragon creators, seraphim angels. Wow. <laughs> Nephilim. Just as Jeez. Yamamoto dynasty is an offshoot of the Shah dynasty and many of the Southeast Asian <laughs> royal bloodlines are the same. So when I talk about families all around the world, understand that this isn't a foreign belief or understanding in terms of how things were set up in ancient times and that they have any objections to setting this up around the world. They just have their own agendas and their own ideas of where they want to be positioned in the world. And you also have the same type of secret societies in Asia as you do in the West. And they're regarded as parallel and equal secret societies as with uh, the ones in the West. And they actually cross-communicate. They have many, many different names. And again, I'll list all of those for you if people want, want the documents. I just wanted to sort of lay that lay, lay that down as, again, a commonality of what we're seeing taking shape and why it can come together, but it's going to take catalysts to bring that about. And these are everything that the bloodlines of the founding Templars wanted to bring about in their agenda. So again, it's just amazing that they've been plotting this uh, for such a, a long period of time and their organizational structure is extraordinary. Not always unified, but has far-reaching centers and spaces that they can work out of around the world. And that was one of the things that came out of Freemasonry. So as Freemasonry expanded to uh, France with the Stuarts being removed and the start of the of the Jacobite movement, you get continental masonry, which springboards to start the revolution in France. And I'm not gonna cover that off uh, today, but it, it, it again, all connected in terms of the players and what they were doing in terms of the religion and the government that you have an antichrist figure like Napoleon who takes over, but you can't win everything with war. That's why the end time is going to be where Antichrist has everything in place and he just takes over rather easily. And he doesn't have to do the battle for it, which is why you have to have a fake Armageddon. He takes over because of that, doesn't lead that battle. And so when it comes to the Templars, we need to understand that this is sort of an area that uh, we need to understand that Europe was rising in power at this point in time. They had not become the world powers. They had started to make their influence happen in the Middle East and were trying to bring about the end time even then, which is why they crowned themselves as the King of Jerusalem title at that time. So they've been frustrated ever since then when they thought they had made that gambit to bring it about. But now, and that's why they were working together with the assassins, because they were part of that overall understanding of what they were trying to bring about. So anytime you look at, even as you talked about with the assassins, with the video games and things, look at all of the video games now in terms of what are they making for the characters and the storylines and what happens in there and how does that now start to relate to with what I've been talking about today, you'll know that they'll carry those same doctrines and or histories in preparation for the world. So this is an organization that has centuries behind it, um, and some would even say 2,000 years of preparation in its modern version in the West. So their patience 
and their muscular structure and leviathan type reach with all of their different arms into different aspects of, of the world is complete and they used like freemasonry which is what i think we were talking about earlier and i got off topic on it is was set up as we talked about in terms of setting up that reach so as the jacobite movement moved to france you had continental freemasonry and then as and that started the french revolution that we were talking about and then as the commonwealth of england was being established and its empire freemasonry expanded with those lodges around the world and from those locations they used those as centers to get control of the education get control of the banks and to have a base of operations for other organizations like the illuminati and the rosicrucians to work from and their splinter organizations just as the jesuits set up similar organizations through the diocese around the world in the catholic church to work out of as well same organizational structure so look for the consistencies in the actions as well as their true belief system and you'll connect the dots so you mentioned the man behind the curtain scenario and how how they and that's one of the stories where they put their their history and their lore into and then um i wanted to talk about the arthurian legends and and any other legends you want to mention of I read in your book last night how they put their lore into these stories that are just well-known, beloved stories by by everyone, by pop culture, by everything. Yeah, and this is an MO, you know, in terms of understanding everything that they're trying to do, these organizations and religions to to bring about the end time, and their doctrines, and their genealogies, and their histories. This is an MO that has been with us since the dawn of time. When we start getting some of the first literary records, you know, you get the legends that sort of come out of Greece and then you get, you know, the writings that that are coming out of the Greece in terms of the the, the classics, whether it's Homer or Hesiod or whatever. It's telling the same history and the same stories. Or open there, just as Ovides in the time of Rome is going to, like in Metamorphoses as a classic example of Ovides, is going to write about all of these things. But as you move into sort of a Christian world, this open knowledge has to have a little different flavor because of Catholic persecution and Christian persecution of you know, all of these different Gnostic groups, whether or not they were the Manichaeans or um, Mithraism or any of these other religions. And as they reform under the Templars with the Elbigesenians and with the Cathars, uh, which all root back, and again, I cover that off in in my book, they're going to have to write a story where they can encode all of this stuff in, in a superficial story, but only the adepts can understand in terms of the allegory and the imagery or have, or people who have a fundamental understanding, but the higher up you go, the more you take for meaning out of this. And so, you know, we start to see coming in the early Middle Ages, the Grail stories being written. What's really, really interesting, you know, in this is being funded by the Templars, for the most part. Wow. <laughs> and, and the elites, and but heavily by the Templars. And all of a sudden you see uh, this image of the Templar order in the Knights of the Round Table in King Arthur. They're all, and you usually see them in movies, they're dressed up like a Templar Knight. But mm-hmm. they're not created till 1090 by the original founders in Jerusalem. You know, in conjunction with the Calabrian monks, but they're they're past written in. That's again, there's a reason for that. And before I come back to that, I'm just going to move forward. Then you have Shakespeare, another classic example, who writes all of this. So when you're reading Shakespeare, you're reading the fairy tale concept, and that has been the basis for the most part for all of literature going forward and what we see in entertainment today. So. Here's what we're talking about in terms of how they construct that. They have the fairy tale concept as Tolkien and Lewis like to talk about. The fairy tale concept has this interesting, entertaining, superficial story, but it's not the real meaning. It's hidden underneath that you need to understand the language to understand the true meaning 
and this is the concept that they do, and it's the same concept that they take with the Bible, that the superficial text, and thus the resurrection, is a fairy tale. And only the adepts of Gnosticism and polytheism and mystical schools uh, can understand the true meaning of the Bible, and the mundane humans who read the little story are just uh, mundane, obsolete people who don't have and aren't worthy to have the proper understanding. So they're going to change the meaning of the Bible in, in the end time. And so when we look at these Knights Templar being backdated into the Grail story, the first hint is, is that, well, why would that be? Well, as we said, the Knights Templar adepts and leaders were all the royal bloodlines. So this round table is a round table of princes from other countries. And so you have one in uh, particular who is uh, the Gawain Knight of the Round Table, who comes from Lot, Norway, which is the same bloodline that Rollo will be when he invades Normandy that we talked about in part one, that forms the de Bruce's family and William the Conqueror's bloodlines that all will intermarry with the Anjou and Plantagenet bloodlines and everything else that eventually is going to form the Stuart dynasty. But Gawain is from Lot, Norway. Lot, as in Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, that I think was probably the location of uh, the second incursion. Sodom and Gomorrah uh, was? Sodom and Gomorrah. That or Bashan. Wow. I think Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, and I have an interesting document on that for people if, if they want that. And, and these are kings and they're all equals as part of this round table, which is the ring lord allegory. Lord of the ring. The ring of kings. This because is about to ruin a lot of people's day. It is. They're not going to like it. <laughs> and I also, you know, I have a show where I go in for almost two hours on King Arthur <laughs> and everything that goes in it. But we'll cover off sort of the main things of it here today. And this round table is led by King Arthur who pulls Excalibur out of the stone that they in some lores like to say is a sort of Michael and has more Scythian um, qualities and history to it as part of that, that belief. Because again, you have the Celts coming out of uh, Scythia moving to Ireland and into England and will be part of the bloodline that they call the fairy bloodline. The fairy bloodline, as I was talking about fairy tales, is very much interconnected. And in the fairy mythos, you have four different categories. You have uh, the fallen angels that come from the other planets. They're just known as flying godlike beings with wings that come from other planets who rebelled from whoever they rebelled from in, in, in the fairy lore. They have offspring, which are the Tuatha de Danan, which are the Nephilim type creature, both before and after the flood. And you have the Shays and the Banshees and the spirit type beings, which are the uh, the demon spirits of the semi-divine Tuatha de Danan that are created from, from the fairies that come from other planets. And then you have the three groups of the little people, which are the elementals. And this is the four categories of fairies. And with the fairy allegory uh, within the, the bloodline aspect is the fairy bloodline goes back to the female goddess and to the female uh, positioning of a fairy queen, uh, which has to be an ennobled bloodline queen to start a new dynasty. So anytime there's a new dynasty, you need one of these fairy queens to start a new dynasty. So it's the matriarchal bloodline as it's encoded, just as the dragon bloodline is the male patriarchal bloodline. It would, you know, Dracula comes from, again, I won't get into the, to that story because we're talking about, about King Arthur and or the raven. So owl, fairy are the two allegorical names for the matriarchal bloodline. Raven, dragon or serpent uh, are the, the male. And what's important as we bring that into the understanding of King Arthur is, first of all, King Arthur is son of Uther Pendragon, right? Head dragon. And... People in the Celtic dynasties were called Pendragons, who were the leader of all the kings of that area, and they were selected from the royal bloodlines. And King Arthur is a bloodline that goes back to the Tuatha de Danann, so he is also a fairy king as well, just as Oberon 
in Shakespeare is the king of the fairies and Titania is the queen and Titania is another name for not only a lower god in Greek mythology like Zeus or somebody like that and female would be Titania so uh, their offspring were Nephilim like Hercules and uh, Theseus and people like that so and Oberon is the king of the fairies and Oberon is overlord as it comes out of Scythia and other Tuatha Danon has different transliterations to the name that I won't bore people with right now, but it's the same meaning in the leaders of the fairy people of the Tuatha Danon. So he is has giant bloodlines, whether totally in, uh, encaptured within an allegory or directly back to a specific race of giants that settled in into Ireland, uh, one of the two, and Guinevere, and as you take that name back to ancient Irish, it is you know, a reflection of a fairy queen and she also has her genealogies and is a fairy queen that's married to the dragon king Arthur, who is leading the ring lord of kings, which is the recreation of the ring lords created in Sumeria that ruled the world and the kingships were issued out of Nippur where the gods rain from to crown all the Nephilim Anunnaki, another name for, for Nephilim kings, both before and after the flood. And so you have this direct connection back and also understanding that Tuatha Dedanan has variations in terms of how they spell it and, and pronounce it, including the Tuatha Danu or the tribe of Anu, which is the root word for the Anunnaki who creates <laughs> Wow. the Nephilim in the Sumerian mythology, and whom after the flood, the Scythians, who also are called the Marianu, go in and settle into that area, as we talked about, I think, in part one, and then also went into uh, India to uh, start, you know, those early religions and, and kingships. So you have all of this allegory that's written in, and you have things like Hebron, known as Bron and shortened variations and Bran, that are written into uh, King Arthur as well. And that is understood in, the, in their language as Hebron, and that is also known as uh, Kiriath Arba, and Arba is the father of the Anakim, the patriarch in the Bible, and this was known as the capital city of giants after the flood, or one of the main centers mm -hmm. of giants after the flood. And so you have all of these connections back to the Nephilim bloodlines, and you also have the complete fairy understanding overlaid. So when you understand that not only Guinevere is the queen of the fairies, you have Morgan Le Fay, which is Morgan the fairy. And a Morgan is a mermaid, as they bring back two other concepts in terms of the name and the title, um, that uh, go back to mermaids. And mermaids is Mary Maid or Mary and Miriam, and etymologies, it goes back there, and you were taking this back as part of that matriarchal sort of bloodline again that they have encoded in there, and that these fairies, as in the ladies of the lake, they guard the portals to Anwin and other lo locations of the underworld. And you have the religion that's now worked in where, uh, you know, even at the end of the reign that their religion has to go underground because now it's going to be the time of Christianity and the religion that they oppose. And their priesthood is represented in the stories through Merlin, which is a title, and he's a wizard. And a wizard is a male minister or priest in the Gnostic and Druidic and polytheist understandings, just as the witch is the female priestess. And so he has all of this magical power, which again is a representation of the power of the seven sciences. And again, it just goes on and on and on and on. And I don't want to totally dissect all of King Arthur, but I thought I'd give enough for people that would, would understand. And then this is after the fall of this reign of, let me, let me just before I get into the fall of King Arthur and, and the Celtic and the Dragon Dynasties in, in Wales and in, um, in England, this whole story when Arthur pulls the sword from the stone is the sign of the new age of Atlantis. 
right? And just as if you imagine any of the Atlantean stories, Merlin is an archetypical figure from the Atlantean magic and priests of that period and how they're depicted in other entertainment, just as the Magi is also part of that for after the flood and how the priests of Egypt are. This is that type of individual and religion that's equated in, into Merlin. So now after, uh, and this is also allegorical for this kingship, this Lord of the Rings that they want for the new age or the new Babylon that the Templars commissioned to have right in terms of the story, that we talked about previously here that they want to bring in for the end time. Now, when that part of the world falls in terms of the Celtic kingships to the Romans, it passes on to Normandy, um, which is very important to understand why Rollo, as part of this ring lord, part of this intermarriage, wants to take Normandy back to regain part of their kingdom and why the next thing that they do in 1066 with William the Conqueror is to take over the uh, monarchy of England and reestablish the reign of King Arthur with William the Conqueror, which is also from that era and takeover, the De Bruces and the Sinclairs move into Scotland in preparation for taking over the kingship of Scotland as well. And again, it becomes this unification of the bloodlines of the De Bruce that come over who are also take their lineage back to, to Norway and to being intermarried with bloodlines in Europe um, as part of Rex Deus that we talked about in, in, in the first show, as well as the Tuatha Danon bloodlines that come out of the King Arthur dynasties, which is why it's the unicorn dynasty, which is, and unicorns are always in fairy tales. They're not there mm -hmm. for a reason. And it's a white horse with a single horn. And it's the horse that the Nephilim, in their belief system, the Nephilim kings rode into battle in the antediluvian times. Whereas in the Bible, and it shows up in the King James Stuart Bible, with his name on it, I'm only put, not saying he wrote the Bible, I'm just saying it has his name on it. It has unicorn in there to reflect his influence on the Bible as it has a few interesting translations, which I don't think are by mistake. Unicorn would be one of them. And unicorn, as you take that back to Hebrew, is the Hebrew word rem, which means a wild bull. And unicorn mm -hmm. is part of the Stuart dynasty in terms of the coat of arms. And again, it's reflecting that bloodline on that throne uh, and part of the bloodline that I think and the allegory that they're going to use for Antichrist. So hopefully I've connected some dots there. <laughs> oh, a lot. A lot of dots. It's just crazy how they use these stories to pack their their timelines and their, their history into. Yeah, and you know, all of the allegory that's in King Arthur shows up in the secret societies. All the different types of knights uh, in terms of the imagery, you know, from the pelican um, and the swan knight, all shows up in Rosicrucianism. That's not a coincidence. Um, they overlay, you know, the, the Red Cross, which is, a, is, a, is an ancient order that comes out of the knight orders, uh, the knights of the east and the west, in uh, the arch uh, orders um, that contain the knowledge that was learned from Hiram Abif uh, and Abif and the king of Tyr to build the Solomon Temple that starts to pass down through the Judaic lines in terms of that knowledge and the knight orders that they also draft Jeroboam into as he is knighted uh, by Darius into this order that is going to build the temple. So they are, as they're writing their history and their belief system, are going to bring all of this out to discredit our understanding of history and particularly to discredit everything in Christianity so that they can manipulate it into the new Babylon religion. Jeez, and, and from so far back, it's just shocking. It's absolutely, yeah, it's, and you, you know, I think you get um, different periods in the conspiracy and certainly the last 2000 years from the West is what we're most familiar with. And they've been the most focused on bringing about the end time. But if you go into other religions, they all talk about the new age that they believe that we're in right now. Um, the age of Aquarius, where there's going to be a destruction by fire. They all believe in an Antichrist type figure. So again, whether or not it's a new Buddha or it's a Lord Maitreya 
or it's the Mahdi that comes out of the Shia part of Islam. They all believe that there will be this Messiah type figure that will come along to lead us into Godhood. So this religious belief system that they're trying to put together, a cosmology that I like to call global Gnosticism, is not foreign to most of the people in the world. It's been taught in their religions throughout the millennia. Um, it's been suppressed in the West because of Christianity, but it's still there and it's still very powerful and it's been working below the surface just as they like to write their literature from the same point. It's below the surface just as the inner core of these organizations are where people know the true knowledge and on the outside that everybody sees the veneer of the organization, it seems all hunky-dory, but it's not. Yeah, this definitely changes how I view those stories. And now if I were to read them again, I'd be kind of looking for how this ties in with everything. Well, and look for everything like what comes out of Walt Disney. I mean, he has absolutely mm -hmm. taken a particular section, whether or not it is fairies and elves and those types of creatures as a main part of their belief system and understand that Walt Disney was a Freemason and a Rosicrucian who was working on the entertainment end of the agenda with their history. Wow. <laughs> and everything starts to make sense. Now they're expanding that in terms of the entertainment and adding in more of the different themes, but it's all the same doctrine. It just has different allegories. So if you're talking about, you know, science fiction or the Star Wars scenario, it is the same stories and the same allegories, just with a different superficial fairy tale surface story. Well, like I said, a lot of people's days are going to be ruined with this information, but Sometimes that's the path you take. My day was ruined when I found out about the Templars and how they weren't as, as Christian yeah. as we thought. They weren't Christian at all. I, I, I agree with that 100%. So, I mean, my bubble has been burst so many times, but uh, <laughs> uh, that's part of waking up to see, you know, what's really going on. And uh, again, just look at the actions that are going on. You see this step-by-step -step march to bring all of this about. Uh, we don't know exactly when it all comes together um, and it won't happen until uh, the restrainer is removed. So no matter how they try, they can't bring it about until God permits it in the, in the ordained period. And then everything that's written about in prophecy, everything that they're talking about from the polytheist side of what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, will come together as it was foretold in the Bible. Well, thank God that you know, God is in control and all this stuff, no matter how much they're plotting and planning goes on, he has the ending under his control. Thank you, Gary, for coming on. It's, as always, you, you, you leave us with a ton to mull over and, and look into, which is great. So uh, thank you so much. And anybody who wants to contact Gary, he has his Facebook page, Gary Wayne, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Um, your web, is your website your best place to get your book? E, well, it's the easiest place, the Genesis6Conspiracy.com with the number 6Conspiracy.com. And on that link, you can get a signed copy or you can link over to BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com or the Kindle version and Amazon.ca. Uh, I know in Canada, it's available through Chapters and Indigos. It's distributed in the U.S. by Barnes & Noble. So if your store doesn't have it on the shelf and you wanted to support a local store, they can order it from Bookmasters and get it in for you. And uh, one thing that I really respect about you and like about you is, is how anybody that reaches out to you for information, you'll email them PDFs of your, your research and your stuff that you put together. And I actually emailed you a while back and you sent me oh, stuff about Oh, did the, you? <laughs> yeah, you sent me stuff about Scorpion. Um, Scorpion Scorpions. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so pe I've got great documents, whether it's on Lion Men or Serpent Nephilim or the 70 Gods or the Cross of Lorraine. And so, so many things or that goes deeper into areas like the Nephilim Wars. I have a 14 part series on the Nephilim Wars. Oh, wow. And even though I cover that off in my book, I don't go it through a step-by-step -step, uh, detailed into the minutia and bringing out the full meaning of those wars. So yeah, if there's a topic area that you're interested in, send me an email. If I've got a document on that, I'll send it to you. But if you have a question, I'll answer that too, of course. Well, thanks again for coming on and it's a pleasure to be on the Daily Renegade platform with you. Terrific, thanks for having me. Wasn't that a treat? It was. 
It's always a treat when we hear a little bit of something special from Gary Wayne. Uh, happy holidays to you all. God bless you all. And for our paid content this week, we're going to be doing a marriage challenge that is meant to beef up our marriages, strengthen them up. There's no gimmick. There's no five-step program. You need to put effort into your marriage, even if it's doing okay. Build it up stronger. You build your body stronger. You build your mind stronger. Why not build your marriage stronger? The marriage mirrors God's love for us, so you really should focus on that. And let's put the effort into our marriage. The same effort we would put into studying and researching the Templars. Why don't we double that and put it into our marriages? So that's for our paid content. And for the rest of you guys, love you guys. Stay rad.